Here at The Regenerative Journey, we know that good health is related to good food and good practices, but understand that sometimes the right food choices are quite hard to put into place. But our good buddy, Cindy O'Meara, at the Nutrition Academy is helping people break old habits to create a much healthier lifestyle. So in support of what she's doing, we're offering a $100 discount to all our listeners. Simply enroll in their functional nutrition course and enter the coupon CHARLIE100, that's CHARLIE100, the Nutrition Academy, say goodbye to old food habits and hello to a much healthier, happier life. I learned that I was a bit of a hypocrite. So here's this girl who's been standing on a soapbox, getting arrested, telling everyone to eat local food for the best part of 10 years. I live in Australia and I never tried local food. Local, local food. Local, truly mm. local food. Mm. You cannot exist in a world where you are a local food eater, local whatever you want to call yourself, mm. if you've not tried anything that's indigenous yeah. to your own country. That was Rebecca Sullivan, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and internationally and their continuing connection to country, culture, community, land, sea and sky. And we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an eighth-generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series... I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. G'day. Today's interview is with Rebecca Sullivan. Um, as I sit here on her patch of dirt, uh, or the bit, patch of dirt that she's looking after with a partner, um, Damien, here near Clare in the uh, in South Australia, we had a wonderful discussion. Um, and 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 what was beautiful about it was we're sitting here looking across that land that, that has been regenerated um, for her before she got here. Um, by the previous owners and uh, the previous owners and this land found found um, Rebecca and Damien, I've no doubt, given the conversation we had. We talked about um, Indigenous culture, um, the connection of that, the co-culture. We talked about cultural appropriation. We talked about Rebecca's life and, and the pivotal moments in her life when she discovered, um, it was quite funny actually in Italy, um, the food, the, the the moment, the event that changed her life, uh, the catalyst for change, and and what a lovely journey um, she's had since that since that uh, that that pivotal moment, and many and many more to come too. Um, we talked about one one do their um, uh, um, their food business. I guess at the end of the day, it is um, that that they have created, which is the, the support and the and the growing and the and the um, the selling of, of indigenous foods, which I think is a, such an important and, and and done very respectfully too. Um, so we had a lovely yarn um, as the sun's sort of going a little bit further down in the horizon. There um, couldn't have picked a better day to sit here and chat uh, with Rebecca Sullivan. Rebecca Sullivan, welcome to. Your home, <laughs> your veranda. It's the first time I've been welcome to my own home. <laughs> I'll I take have, it. I have a habit of doing that. <laughs> you were here much longer b- before I was. Yeah. Um, in the Clare Valley. Yep. 
and I'm very grateful that you've given me your time on a Sunday morning. Thank you. When you could be doing lots of other things. Um, so <laughs> no, a, no, should be doing lots of other things. There's a massive difference. <laughs> well, I trust at the end of this interview you'll be, um, you know, pleased that there was you, you, you felt there was some value oh, in, in, in spending the time. Um, so welcome to the regenerative journey. As you may be aware, I like to dig into the the journeys of my, my guests. And Was that we, a pun? Was that an intended pun? What, the regenerative the, journey? The, the dig. The dig bit. The dig. No. Um, no, it wasn't. It was good. I always, one, I always say that. that that's <laughs> it. That actually, my wife doesn't. She's not in the. She thinks it should be. I don't know what, what the alternative would be. To delve. No, delve, delve was the word she would have delve. preferred. But dig was, was what happened. So, um, and I like to start uh, and sit in my guest's natural environment, mm-hmm. which is where we are. This is. And, and what's going on behind me there? It's about as natural as it gets. You've probably got a stick in your back or something. Right. Baby, baby toy. As, <laughs> I re- as I relax, I'm just, something's at my bottom there. Uh, <laughs> it's all part of the welcome, it's pretty, wi- it's pretty wild here. Um, we're sitting here on your, in your veranda mm-hmm. at the front. We're sort of looking um, east, is the way I see it, mm-hmm. across some of your, your country, the country you're looking after. With uh, with Damien, your husband, tell me, uh, um, no, 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 not oh, husband. your partner. Oh, I always do that. It's partner. A bit of a sore point. We won't go there. Yes, Maybe okay. that's the one thing that should be off limits. We <laughs> do. <laughs> <laughs> how about how about Damien, your friend? Damien, my friend, that's my man the, friend. That's the safest thing. Okay, <laughs> off to a crackingly bad start there. So let's look um, look beyond that to the east, um, and I want I'd love to know what it means. For you to be sitting here, I mean, why why are you here? You could have been anywhere. You've been all over the world mm-hmm. working and teaching people and doing amazing, wonderful things. Why the Clare Valley and why this particular hill? Oh, that's a good question. I'm back in the mid-north of South Australia, which I swore I would never do because this is where I grew up, not in Clare, but in a little tiny town called Malala. And, you know, as a 16-year-old girl, the, the, the worst thought would be ending up you know, where you grew up as a teenager, when the only thing you were interested in growing up in a farm region was the boys on the tractors, not the actual tractors themselves. <laughs> I swore I would never come back here and I was, I, I just was pulled back here. And we moved to Clare because my parents are in Clare and Damien's parents are in Corn, so we're kind of halfway between, I guess, Adelaide, our sort of working capital, and, and Damien's parents and Clare was that place. And um, I don't think I had any any choice in it, really. It, it just it was the right place to be at the, at that time. And this hill, well, this was lucky because we'd actually put in an offer on a different property. Because I always intended, since the minute I started working in in the sustainable food movement, was to live this way off the grid and as sustainably as I could. I didn't think it would happen quite as soon as it did. But the timing couldn't have been better, I think, from a whole matter of reasons. But, yeah, we we put in an offer on a different place and we didn't get it. We were a bit bit heartbroken when we didn't. But in hindsight, it was the best thing that could have happened because we ended up in this country, which is just beyond perfect for who we are, our intention in life and our legacy that we want to create. 
Tell me about that country. Tell, tell me what you're seeing and how, how, how you see it, you know, and, and what was attractive about it that sort of made you think, you know what, this is the spot. The most attractive thing for me about this property was the fact that 20 years ago there wasn't a, you know, there was a handful of trees. Now we have three tree plantations. I shouldn't really use the word plantation because that kind of alludes mm. to something quite commercial. Yeah. We now are surrounded by trees, different species mainly natives, 60 bird species. There were two birds when the people before us bought the property, Des and Leslie Menz, who are our heroes in lots of ways. Um, it was the fact that this place had been regenerated and we saw possibility. We mm. saw possibility not just for us but for our community and our larger community and our country and our world. We thought if this place went from being this barren monoculture piece of soil in the big sort of wide world, the big ecosystem, and it is now currently what it is, then anything's possible. And and that for me was just something that I hold in my heart and in my soul and in my body and and um was just this I guess the start of our story in this in this regenerative sort of world and what we want to do for the world and our intention and our integrity and all of that stuff. And it just it was just this world of possibility and I just it just we the minute we stepped foot on it, we were just like, "This is why we didn't get the other place because we were meant to. This place was meant to be ours. We, the people we bought it from, Des and Leslie said this place was meant to be yours. We've been waiting for you to come for us to hand our mm. work, our life's work, over to someone like you guys." It's you know, and I look around, and I haven't seen photos of of what it used to be, but mm-hmm. I can imagine. You know, to me, the heavy lifting has been done. The heavy lifting has been done. And that was, I think, an important part of why also we chose this property because we knew that we didn't want to spend the next 20 years doing the foundation stuff because we probably would end up breaking up or something, you know, because it's a huge, it's a huge job. And the bones are here. You know, most of the work is done. And we knew that then we could do the important bit that we're good at, that our skill set allows us to do. You know, we're not, we didn't know how, we wouldn't have been able to do this. We wouldn't have known where to start. But now we have this foundation of our life's work ready, already here, and we can learn and grow with it. Um, I, I, we, yeah, doing what these guys did before us, we would spend our life just mm. getting these trees growing. No, and so that was another part of why we this property was right for us. We didn't want to do that bit before. And it's a wonderful thing that you it found you, mm. and Des and Leslie found you. Yeah, that that legacy could be continued, which is fitting because from what you know, we went for a, a drive and a walk around this morning, mm. and you know, um, there is a legacy to be left. Hundred for your for your children, your community, mm. you know, and the world. And I. I am. Um, I'm really excited about what I've seen this morning. Thank you, know? you. No, I think it's amazing the fact that you took it on. Yeah. Um, there was a foundation. You have um, an open mind, mm-hmm. which is probably one of the most important things. You don't have the legacy of previous farming paradigms or family or family that mm-hmm. sort of are going to you know scoff and yep. <clears throat> you know cajole and. Scorn yep. and, and carry on, which is what a lot of farmers who are changing their 
their paradigms and their practices have to sort of deal with, understandably, because that's just human nature to mm-hmm. sort of often be scared of change. Um, and the older generation, I totally get that that can be a real thing for them. Yeah. So you have a you have another gener you have an older generation that is supportive of what you're doing. Yeah, which and is wonderful. For that, we feel really blessed, and we have a, two different types of older generation as well. We've obviously got you know my cultural heritage, um, English, Australian, Irish, and then Damien's this beautiful Indigenous heritage of generations of of caretakers to the mm, land, you know. Mm. So us having this beautiful co-culture existence here and two supportive family networks, you know, that, that saying, it takes a village, <laughs> has never been truer, you know. I didn't really understand that before I, before we had Mali, but now I really understand it. But, yeah, we're, we're very blessed to have a really supportive family who aren't just supportive by way of, you know, mentally, but physically, you know. The weekends and the, the days off and when both Damien and my dad, you know, every day that they have off that they can be here helping us out, you can't do it without that. You can't take on a property like this without knowing that you've got that backup and that support. And what a wonderful contribution they can make. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we hope that this property is contributing to them as well, you know, um, from a from a therapeutic perspective, from a... Mm-hmm. Joy, the joy that people get when they come and see this, these trees and these birds and these kangaroos hopping around and, and you know, the barbecue and the food and, and the laughs, you know. We hope that people are getting as much joy out of it. When friends come up here for the weekend, they're just, you know, blown away that, that this is our house, this is our home, mm. <laughs> you know, and they get to share in that, which is extraordinary. You get to wake up to this every morning. Oh, I know. Sometimes, sometimes you just take that for granted, don't you? you know? Hey, let's um, let's go back in time because we're sort of oh. that's all like oh, oh Malibu. <laughs> he's been he's been pushed around by Granny. At pushed the around by Granny, <laughs> by Rebecca's mum. You know, little like, looks like a little bat, like a shopping trolley or something. <laughs> it's a little shopping that's trolley. Cool. That's my that's my market shopping trolley. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite mode of transport: shopping what trolley. Classy. <laughs> um, let's go back. Let's go back to as I said. You know, we I want to sort of. Dig delve into the, your regenerative journey, you know, steps along the way. Mm. You know who was Rebecca Sullivan? You know, way way back. You know what? What? Where? Where did? It, where do you want to start? Well, I think. I mean, my it started way back subconsciously without me even knowing it. You know, I grew up in this tiny town called Malala, five hundred people, surrounded by food, surrounded by sheep and wheat. You know. And uh, I didn't know where my food came from. You know, I grew up in a meat and three veg household where if mum made spaghetti bolognese, it was like, woo, what's this fancy pan stuff? Fancy (laughs) European The day she made stir fry, we all went, whoa, Mm. (laughs) that's a bit fancy. I'm hearing you. Yeah. And so I grew up in that household, but I also grew up in that household of being an eater. You know, every single celebration was always surrounded by food. And I think that was sort of my nan's influence and my great grandmother's influence. And, so I grew up eating and celebrating through food, but couldn't have told you where food came from until I sort of started working in it, you know, at 21, but in it from the sustainability perspective. So I always worked in hospitality like most most kids my age, you know, through school and through, through um, you know, studies and all of that sort of stuff. But it wasn't until I went to London on a holiday, um, like most 
people, most Australians that go to London for a holiday. So finish, finish school after, yeah, after school? So after yeah. school I studied journalism um, yeah, cool. and I actually thought I wanted to be a sports journalist or a lawyer, so quite contrasting. Um, I don't know why I wanted to be a sports journalist because I didn't even, wasn't even interested in sport. It's <laughs> one of the good-looking so, AFL yeah, Well, it was so it? random. It's because I worked on the Tour Down Under. Um, I did a bit of work experience. And I thought, oh, yeah, I can do this. You know, that'll do. Um, went to London for six weeks, stayed for 10 years. My first mm. big job in London happened to be working on the Tour of Britain, which is the cycling race. And I got that job because I rang the boss of the Tour of Britain and said, oh, I heard you're bringing the milk race back, the Tour of Britain. Um, can I have a job? And he went, well, who, the, who are you, firstly? I went, I did two weeks' work experience on the Tour Down Under. I can do it. He's like, no, <laughs> you can't have a job. Sort of hung up on me and I kept ringing him for three weeks because I was working for this PR company at the time and it was this real fancy pants PR company, travel, travel, luxury travel PR company, and I hated it. Um, you know, I just felt so fake being being there. So long story short, got a job on the Tour, tour of Britain. They finally let me do work experience. They fired the PR manager, gave me the job after it because I managed to do, I don't know, talk my way into being good at it and um, worked in the cycling world for three years. But what happened during that time is my first aha moment. I like to talk about these aha moments, these moments that set you on your path that you don't even know are happening at the time. And that was um, I was at this fiesta after the tour, uh, the Giro d'Italia, which is the big Italian version of of the Tour of Britain. And at the time I was working on the Tour of Britain, but I was also a press officer for one of the pro teams, Barlow World, I helped set up because I talked my way into that job too. And um, here I am, this sort of naive 24-year-old sitting at this table and there were 50 of us sitting at this table after this big race and someone's nans, nonnas, uncles, aunties, you know, grandma or something had put on this feast and from nowhere, you've got 50 people sitting at a table, all speaking different languages. So Colombians, Spanish, Italian, Australians. And I'm sitting at this table having the most amazing meal of my life. Ten courses that have been thrown together from nothing. And the cheese course comes out. And here I am, I'm sitting there and I had a few vinos, um, along with everyone else at the table. And it was sort of two o'clock in the morning and this cheese gets brought out. And it's sitting on the table in front of me. I'm sitting there and my plate was sort of moving a bit and I was like, oh, shit, I've had a few too many wines or something. <laughs> and I sort of hit the bloke next to me who's Italian and I'm like, oh, my God, there is something in my cheese. It is moving. And he speaks terrible English. I speak terrible Italian. And he's like, oh, no, you know, he explains to me that it's called Kazumazu and it's this Italian Sardinian tradition and it's got live maggots in it. Oh, you're kidding. No. So here's this naive, nasally 24-year-old Australian. He goes, I'm not eating that shit. Like so loud. <laughs> Suddenly everyone could could, could the right. new Holly- English. <laughs> literally like a Hollywood movie. It's like the spotlight comes down on me, the, ro- the, the table goes quiet, everyone's staring at me. And ev- in that moment everyone knew exactly what I'd said. And in that moment <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I pick up this cheese oh, and I put it in my mouth mm-hmm. and I eat it. And not only is it the most delicious thing I've ever tasted, I have this giant aha moment of this realisation that food is so much more than food, Mm. that this cheese was something that was tradition, that had been passed down for hundreds of years, that people pay huge money on the black market for because it's illegal, because it's dangerous, even though grandmas have been doing it for centuries. 
and there is a story behind it and such a big story, you know, and this story involves people and landscape and fermentation and agriculture and heritage and story and I just I'm so blown away by this and I didn't really realize it right then but it all sort of just you know fell like dominoes in front of me I quit my job about two weeks later I joined the slow food movement became the UK youth ambassador for the slow food movement in in the UK and from that minute on I was an activist and I was imparted in the food system I knew I, I wanted to know exactly everything about food, all of its story, all of its heritage, all of its tradition, all of its importance right down to how it was growing and the soil it came from. And that was it. I've been there for 15 years. Isn't it fascinating that a potentially awkward, embarrassing (laughs) sort of down moment. Embarrassing. Very public. Very public, yeah. Was actually the catalyst. Was the was the was the turning point? Yeah, of 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 my now my life's work, you know, just from being so I was mortified at myself, you know, mm. at this, the fact that I'd offended this grandma who lovingly cooked us this meal and presented she presented this cheese to me so excitedly, trying to tell me what it was, but couldn't understand her, and I was probably too pissed to understand her as well. But you know what I mean? Like that moment mm. just changed everything for me. It's almost like. Um you had an obligation, not an obligation is probably the wrong word, but there's a, there's, there was then a responsibility for you to, I mean, yep. what, a, what a wonderful responsibility yeah. you now have to be um, teaching other people. Well, that, and, you know? and it was this nonna, right? And I realised also at that time, like looking back on it, that three years in, three or four years working in cycling, we used to have to go to training camps in Italy all the time. And... Um, We'd always stay in this hotel that this nonna run and I would always sneak into the kitchen and just be fascinated that every time I'd go there would be a different season we'd be eating something else. This is the same nonna who, who made the cheese? Same nonna. Oh, wow. Right. But she would cook for us all the time but there would be like three ingredients and it would be the best tasting thing I'd ever had. And I, without even knowing it was learning about the seasons and learning about food and, and all of these things, they were just, it was almost like they were being just hammered into me slowly, you know, mm. just by this, this nonna. And I think that was also the catalyst of this granny skills idea as well. Nonna skills. Nonna skills, exactly. But it was just, just watching the way the Italians eat just was like, you know, that's how I want to live. <clears throat> it's a pretty, um, I don't know, I can't think of the word, sort of hard, you know, impenetrable person. No, to be able to, to go to Italy and not be enthused, inspired, <laughs> impacted by their culture, their food culture, isn't it? Absolutely. I took um, my whole family, aunties, uncles, nan, everyone, to one of my dearest friends has a beautiful agriturismo in Tuscany. And uh, one of my aunties, it's one of the best moments of my life. You, you know, this is a woman who didn't know you put salt in vegetables to make them taste better. Never tried an olive in her life, you know, real free meat, meat and free veg. Tried an olive for her first time on that farm and now uses salt in her cooking. Mm, <laughs> you there know? you go. <laughs> you can't, it's never too late, is You it? can't. Like that two-week period with my family in that villa, sharing food like that was is one of the greatest mm. moments I've had, you know, just watching these people just fall in love with food in a completely different way, you know. It's, a, it's the glue. It's a relationship glue, isn't it? We, we sure went is. to um, 
my family and I went to Italy a couple of years ago. Thank God we did, nearly, mm. nearly two years ago, and for two months. And I've mentioned it before in other, yeah. other um, interviews, but it was a life-changing yeah. experience because yeah. of the, the simplicity, you know, and the um, in, simplicity of ingredients, in, simplicity of, of the, the preparation, simplicity of even eating it. Like, yeah. you know, it's just like it's on a plate, use your hands, yeah. get into it. And there's a fair chance, you know, given places we went to and as generally the culture, that everything on your plate originated within a mile. Totally. Of where you were sitting. And that, and that didn't matter whether it was a, you know, half fancy restaurant, you know, near, near Rome mm-hmm. or in the hills of mm-hmm. Puglia or somewhere, you know. One of the best meals I've had in my life was in near the agriturismo. We, after we worked on Slow Food Nation in San Francisco, all about 25 of us from the US that worked on this event together all took a pilgrimage to Sevilla's farm because she worked on it too. And we went to the truffle festival first. Uh, in Alba, and then to the farm, and we all stayed in this villa together and just cooked for a week and truffle and everything. But we went to to another nonna's restaurant, you know, and it was literally on plastic picnic chairs, you know, those red and white gingham <laughs> plastic tablecloths. It was 40 euros each, and we had, oh, God, just makes me want to cry thinking about this meal. You know, it was truffle season, so there was truffle shaved on everything. Mm. You know, this Big piece of beef with truffle t- shaved on it, you know, all the antipasti, truffle shaved on it. Oh, just it was just an extraordinary week, you know, and it was everything was just simple. It was, you know, three or four ingredients and, it, it, yeah, it just life so much joy. <laughs> well, clearly it changed your life. What what happened next then? You were, you were inspired. So I, yeah, joined the slow food movement. I, I first became a bit hardcore, too hardcore, I think, as an activist, right? I... I was getting arrested a bit, you know. For, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's like saying, oh, I was getting pregnant a bit. Yeah. You got arrested or you didn't get arrested? All right, I was getting arrested. <laughs> Not a bit, a lot, properly. But for, you're for a good yourself, cause. You were chaining yourself to what? No, well, to, to, to out uh, the front of, you know, the House of Commons in London, um, <laughs> you know, for protesting for farmers. Um, you know, this girl who came from farming country who didn't even want to consider being a farmer or marrying a farmer or being in that country, you know, protesting. It was during, oh, I was in the food movement in this really exciting time in the UK. Mm. It was, you know, around that 2008 time when Hugh Fernley Woodingstall was doing Fish Fight and Jamie Oliver's was starting to do all of his school, you know, mm. his campaigning stuff. And I was lucky enough to get this job um, because I had been arrested and, <laughs> the guy who who worked for an events company, Philip, my boss, said, you want to work on the Real Food Festival? He was also part of the Slow Food Movement. Let's create a festival together. Went, oh, yeah. So I'd been getting arrested for protesting for farmers, for things like pig feed prices, for, you know, unfair conditions. It was this eat British bacon time where oh, yeah. everyone was eating bacon from Denmark and other countries where the pigs have the worst life. Mm. imaginable and British bacon is some of the best bacon you'll ever try and um, much better conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it, it was, you know, we buried Anthony Wall Thompson in a coffin full of cauliflowers out the front of Tesco, you know, so we were trespassing, that sort of stuff. So, That's yeah, cool. No, it was, I don't have a record, but I've <laughs> been in trouble. <laughs> you had more fun. I had way more fun, but what I found was my activism was was way too preachy, and what I found is throughout the years of learning and growing up and, you know, all that stuff, 
my passion was enough to make mm. change and people stopped listening when I was being preachy, as people do, you know. Yep. And so I got this amazing job as, as the Real Food Festival manager and we created, we wanted to create Salone del Gusto, which is the slow food festival in, in Turin, one of the most extraordinary events I've ever been to. We wanted to create that in London. And, and we did a pretty bloody good job of it. We had 450 small producers. They didn't have to pay thousands of pounds to be in Earl's Court. We, what we did was we managed to convince the sponsors to pay and subsidise all these amazing small producers to be in front of not just the consumer but the trade. So we did one-day trade, three days oh, consumer. Cool. Yeah. So they these guys were in front of Selfridges buyers, Fortnum and Masons, you know, Marks and Spencer, Waitrose, all these people, all these buyers that they wouldn't normally get in front of for the first day and then three days of consumer. So you had 450 small producers. We had a um, rabbit skinning area where people really saw what real food was. We had a cookery school. We had, we had this debate with... Um, we had Jamie Oliver, we had um, Zach Goldsmith, who's a, a um, politician in the UK. We had Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. We had all of these amazing, amazing food people in one room for four days and it was extraordinary. And I was one of the creators of that. You know, I had, I had bloody cows in Earl's Court so people could learn how to milk a cow, you know. Mm. It, was, it was wonderful. And from there I got to fly straight to San Francisco and work on Slow Food Nation, which only happened once in 2008. It was an 80,000-person event um, with Slow Food USA and I worked with 25 of the most incredible humans ever, lived in, in, in Berkeley, you know, near Chez worked for Alice Waters and Michael Pollan. And wow, cool. All of my heroes. Um, so that was sort of the grounding for my work, and from there, it's you know been all, all. I guess off the back of those two wonderful experiences and working with, you know, people like Joel Salatin and all of those guys, who back then, you know, in 2010 when I did all that, I had no idea how much of an impact they were going to have because they were sort of you know some of the Michael Pollan was still, mm. you know, easy to get hold of <laughs> back <Yeah>. then, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was this really exciting time to be working in food and sustainability and starting off my career in that because that was the foundation for my food career and I was working with people like that. And that's the bit that's missing, isn't it, I think, in the in the world of food and, and less now because things have evolved. But, you know, farmers are really good at growing food, you know. Mm-hmm. That it's like, you know, you gave them an opportunity, those 450 producers, to get to middle of London mm-hmm. and, sh- and, and and air their wares yeah. to a lot of people. Then if you and your colleagues hadn't done that, I mean, it's they don't have the time to do that sort of they stuff. They don't, and they don't have the money to do that. And the fact that they paid £100 instead of £3,500 was the reason we managed to get so many people there. You know, and I convinced Dalesford Organic and um, – you know, Tyrrell's Crisps, you know, them. this was back when William Chase was still a potato farmer, to give me enough money to have those people there. Mm. Um, and that was just purely from the passion. <laughs> I was obviously, you know, and I don't really take no for an answer. <laughs> you know, the fact that they were willing to, because they were those farmers, you know, years before that, before they were bigger, that was why that model worked and that was why that festival worked and why it was so extraordinary was because those farmers could afford to do that from a resource perspective and an economic perspective. But 
the fact that they got to tell their story to 40,000 consumers and, you know, 100-odd trade, some of those people are still in Fortnum and Masons today and that that makes me really, yeah. you know, really chuffed that, that we were part of some small part of having some ethical and sustainable brands in front of people. What have you seen, before we sort of get back to your, your journey and the next steps, but what, what have you seen that was... Ten years ago, mm, 10, yeah, 20, twelve years uh, ago, two thousand and eight. Twelve, thirteen years ago. Yeah. You know, what's your sense of what's changed now? You know, um, are things the same. You know, farmers still growing food and still have to get other people to do it. Are farmers improving on their marketing? Like, what? what you know, we, we, where's that scene up to now? I think. Um, I think farmers are definitely more aware of the fact that they need to. They need the marketing. I don't think that that necessarily ensures that it happens for all the reasons we talk about resources. You know, there's only so much time in the day and there's all of those things, but creating a brand as a farmer, if you want to be a a regenerative farmer, smaller farmer, ethical farmer, whatever you want to call it, creating a brand is really important if you want to go direct to consumer and not be a commodity. I think there's a difference. I think if you're going to be a commodity farmer, then having the brand, you know, it doesn't really matter, maybe, but if you want to be a, a you know, a direct to consumer farmer and and part of that whole system, then having a brand is as important, I think, as as the product itself. Totally, and being able to sell the sizzle, not just the sausage. Yeah, and there's a lot more going on in Australia. Um, well, I'm, I'm again, yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with overseas. I see mm. it, and it's yeah, active, and things have been a bit um, a bit slow in the last twelve months, of course, because mm. I just haven't had the yeah. The you know the influx of people to support them from other countries and the cross pollination, mm. but there's certainly more um, of those events around. Like right now in Adelaide or in the area mm. in South Australia, there's you know Tasting Australia yep. is on. Yep. You know, um, there's definitely. I mean, can well, we owe that, I guess, in large to consumers being more savvy. You know, the consumer back in 2008 when we first did that. You know, that was the start of. Really, I think this local food movement, this consumers wanting to know where you know know where their food came from, as opposed to just you know it was almost the end of people wanting to eat fancy food and people just wanting to eat food where it had a story. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was the start of that in the UK, and then like a lot of things, Australia it happens. You know, by the time I moved back to Australia in twenty eleven. 20, yeah, 2011, it felt like it, it was just starting here, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like I got two waves of that extraordinary foundational being part of something that felt a little bit revolutionary, you know. Even though it's not revolutionary, it's we're not creating, you know, we're not creating anything new here, not reinventing any wheels. It is a cycle. This sort of stuff happens all the time, but it, it I felt like I've been lucky enough to be part of it sort of twice over and have have my time again to to relearn something and and be part of that which is quite extraordinary but i think um that sort of local food movement wanting to know where your food comes from that hasn't disappeared that's only gotten stronger since 2008 definitely well as i say you know no one's walking into the 
grocery store going, hey, can you get more of that GMO corn yeah, in, please? Yeah, please can I have some more? That more, more. <laughs> yeah, I love corn syrup on everything. <laughs> please can I have a little can bit I, more in there? That know? lettuce, the lettuce has been yeah. sprayed 12 times. Uh, in life. I love 40,000 skews to choose from. Please, <laughs> please put it all there. And that's really positive because yeah. they're not doing that. They're yeah. going, no, I, the I want more organic stuff. I want more clean you know? stuff. I want to know where it's from. Totally. And that whole Michael Pollan saying about, you know, shopping in the exterior of the supermarket, mm. it, it's never been truer, you know. Mm. Mm. Um, or if your grandmother didn't recognise it as food, then it's not food. It hasn't been truer, you know. Mm. That staying away from processed stuff, all of, all of that stuff, you know, they're all those little granules of perfect, per, almost perfect sound bites that stick in your uh, head, you know, for, for the rest of the time. They resonate. Tell me, um, who were some of your favourite, um, uh, well, I mean, I'm, I mean, I guess they, turn, they they can be or they turn into celebrities because of the popularity mm. and they just resonate with people. But who are some of your favourite people you've worked with in that time? Alice Waters is an extraordinary, extraordinary woman. Um, she's definitely Dorena Allen. From so, so Alice at Chez Panier. Yeah. So Alice yeah. Waters, sorry, yeah, she's she's the owner of, of Chez Panier and founder of she was a big part of Slow Food USA, mm-hmm. um, and in its in its starting days, edible schoolyard um, program in in the US. Extraordinary woman, extraordinary educator. Just has a, this beautiful, gentle way of, mm. of expressing importance, and um, just sticks with you. And then you've got Dorena Allen, who I've worked with. I still. Well, I haven't been able to go because COVID, but usually go over there at least once a year and teach at Ballymaloo Cookery School, which is one of my favourite places Where's on the planet in, in Ireland, in um, County oh, Cork. Wow, cool. They, um, Darina is like the slow food god of Ireland, so she's mm. like the Alice of. So you've kind of got, you know, Alice Waters is is the US. Darina is Ireland. You've got Maggie and Stephanie Alexander here in Australia. They're yeah. all sort of these grandmothers Beautiful. of. Yeah. Of the sustainable food movement, and they're all my absolute heroes. Um, uh, you know, Rodney Dunn and Sev down at the Agrarian Kitchen, uh, two of my favourite humans I've ever worked with. I'm lucky enough to teach at the Agrarian, and, and their authenticity and integrity in what they do in everything they do. And Tassie. And Tassie is mm. just one of. You know, they're two of my favourite people as well. Mm. Um, and, you know, their potato fritters are pretty bloody good. <laughs> they're they're on my, they're one, of my, the one of my death row it? meals. <laughs> is no, is yeah, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> You're probably not the only oh, one. Costa from Gardening Australia is one of my best mates mm. and, and my hero, you know. Every time I do something, I go, would Costa be proud of me? And if Costa mm. would be proud of me, then I'll continue on my way. You know, that man is is everything. You know, to me, he's my he's my pedestal. You know, he's my he's my benchmark of being a good human on this planet and what I can give, not take. You know, um, so him. You know, and then you've got the Eric Schosslers and the Michael Pollans and the Tim Langs and you know all of those amazing writers who who express in a way that you know some I f- I think some people are readers and some people are, are, are not, and the people that are readers that can get from a book. What I have to get from being with people, those guys, you know, of, of the Bruce Pascoes, you know, um, the Charles Masseys, all of those, those farmer regenerative activist types are, are just people that that really resonate with me. Dan Barber um, um, in the US, his 
book, the third plate, really just rocked me. Um, I've I've been out out to um, out to the farm as well in in New York when I was at Yale last year or the year before. Everything's a bit of a blur, and and spent some time out there. And what they're doing out there is extraordinary. Um, oh my god, there's just there's so many so many amazing people that just inspire me and that I've been lucky enough to work with. Um, over the years, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, um, you know, I'm lucky enough to teach at River Cottage in the UK pre COVID. Um uh. so Hugh is a bit of a a bit of a hero of mine. Rachel DeThample, who's my best friend in London, she she teaches at River Cottage and is an incredible author. You know, pe- people in my everyday life are my heroes, you know, this she's she's an incredible human. I'm just I'm lucky. I'm surrounded I'm surrounded by them and they're all my if they'd be proud of me and what I'm doing, then I'll continue on my way, you know. You must be doing something right because those people don't have to like you or don't have to hang around <laughs> I work hope with they you. they like you me. Know? No, it's exactly a real credit yeah. to you. It's not, not so much about pumping up your tyres. It's yeah. about, you know, the passion that you show and the, and what you contribute, what you give um, is resonating with people and they want, you know, you are, you're, you're assisting them because you're not necessarily, you know, farming and growing lots of this or lots of that, no. but you're that... You're that bit that's such a an integral part of the of the of the system, not the system, but the, that process of that of that path, that journey of food, you know. You. And it needs it needs people like you and others to 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 do that because not everyone's got the skills, not yeah. everyone's got the time, and it is important, isn't it? It's not just like commodity, grow this, sell that, yeah. eat it. It's fuel. Don't care. I think. That's a really good point there. That you know, surround yourself by people that are good at the stuff you're shit at. You know, and and it takes all of us for this regenerative agriculture, sustainability, this food movement, this whatever we want to call it, to exist. You know, we can't all just be we can't all just be farmers. We can't all just be feeders. Yeah. You know, but what my dream would be was would be that every chef that existed in the world spent some time as a farmer, and every farmer that existed in the world. Spend some time as a as a chef or as a cook, mm. because how much could we all learn if we knew the end or or, or the beginning? Yeah. You know, if we weren't just the chicken or the egg, so to speak. You mm. know, if if we knew what the farmer wanted and the farmer knew what the chef wanted, and they knew how much time it took for both of those things, I don't think we pay the pay the true cost of food at all. But if a chef had spent that time. Mm. In the farm, doing it from scratch, they'd understand the true cost of food and vice versa. You know, I don't think the consumer under knows the true cost of food. I think the supermarkets have done us wrong with these price wars and these two for ones and these, you know, perfect, you know, perfect sized everything. They they've taken the reality out of food and. Um, you know, we all want cheap food, and that's a, at detriment to us ultimately from a environmental perspective and a health perspective. Well, that was my next question. Now, what, who, or what is actually is actually paying for that food? Now, what, what is what is footing the bill? Well, our health, <laughs> our health, and our planet. You know, that's what's fitting the bill. They're, they're the ones paying. <laughs> we're pa- we're going to pay for it eventually. You know, whether it's because we've health problems because we're eating nothing but processed shit because we can't afford vegetables because we're not paying the true cost of food or we can't grow any more food in this region because everything's 
to shit, the soil's to shit because we've taken full advantage of it and pillaged it to death. You know, ultimately it's going to come and hit our pocket, whether it's my generation or my son's generation, you know, that pay that price. But if we keep going the way we're going and don't pay the true price for food, then we're all screwed, really. I mean, if you look at other countries, you know, some countries 54% of their salary goes on food. It's something wow. like it's less than 10% mm. in the, in Australia, I think. Don't get me wrong and don't hold me to that figure because I'm not sure, but I know it's minuscule. Mm. You know, once upon a time, I know my grandmother's generation spent a huge proportion of their salaries on food. We do not. That, there's something wrong with that. We're, we're spending it on consumables, that, that, on not in our mouths. It's going through completely. our ears or our eyes or our heads. Or Absolutely. Something. Absolute big screen TVs and broken iPhones, you know, that we could probably fix. Mm. Yeah. Um, Joel Salatin has been known to say, um, you know, you've got a choice. You either pay pay the farmer now or the doctor later. Yeah, 100%. Mm. I went to his farm a couple of years ago and spent some time. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I was lucky. I was I was doing a fellowship at the Smithsonian Museum in, in D.C. and I was there in 2014 for, for four months working and um, – Lucky enough to, I was working in their food history department, so I, you know, rang Joel. I'd met Joel when he'd been over here, and um, went and spent some time down there. And what he's doing on a small amount of land, you know, I mean that for me, and that whole, <laughs> you know, him being a bioterrorist. When you get there and go and see <laughs> his neighbours, you'll understand why they think he is that way. I mean, it's mm. extraordinary. But um, what everything he says, you know. I'd, I, I'm the same. I'd rather be a lunatic farmer and <laughs> be a bioterrorist, known totally. as a bioterrorist, and, and live on this property that is green than you know mm. some of the properties around me for sure. I've got a little um, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall fanboy moment. I was in <laughs> LA um, lounge. I'm not yeah. sure if I've mentioned this in another interview, but I'll do it again anyway. Um, in a la- in the lounge in LA, waiting to come back from uh, from the US mm. uh, with my family, and sat in the lounge. It was a bit of a temporary thing at the time, so it was quite sort of squished up and everything. Anyway. Sat down and, you know, end of the long trip and last leg home mm. to, to, to Australia. And I look up and I went, oh, my God, that is Hugh Burnley <laughs> Winning Store right across the little thing there. Yeah. And his, his hair was quite short now. You yeah. know, he used to have it quite long. Yeah. Anyway, and I was all fidgety and weird and just like going, <laughs> oh, my God. Weird. And then and she, I, she, I, was, I was like doing these eyes, going, <laughs> like little thumb things. And, and she's worked it out. And she's going, oh, my God. Anyway, Persia, um, my daughter, she she was going. She said to me, "What's wrong with Charlie? What's wrong? What's he doing?" Because <laughs> I was all fidgety and weird. Anyway, I got my my, my sort of business card and put it mm-hmm. in my pocket, and I was sitting there, and I went, oh, "God, this is a once in a lifetime chance." Yeah. So I introduced myself and said hello and said I'm a bit of a fan, and he, mm-hmm. you know, took a photo and had a five minute chat. Mm-hmm. Lovely, lovely guy. Anyway, I didn't think much more of it, just that I was just in awe and going, because I really, I love his stuff. He's just his personality and what he's, yeah. just everything about him is just amazing. Anyway, um, got back to Australia and a few months went by. And then um, I can't quite remember what the order of service was, but anyway, he had, you know, and he didn't have to, he's the sort of kind of guy he is. Mm. He, he'd, he'd given my card to someone and, 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 that person, or maybe him himself, had contacted Nani Dwyer, yeah. who worked as, a, as one of his sort of you know, executive or sous yeah. chefs in in, um, in in England. And she got in touch with me, or I got in touch with her, or something. I can't quite remember, but it was beautiful. And then we chatted, and then now she's doing some amazing things, sort of her bread, you know, gluten free yeah. bread, and such a lovely girl. And 
And I was just like, wow, he didn't he, he didn't have to do that. You know, he just ran to some yeah, random sort of fanboy in an airport. Yeah. And that's why he's still around as well, you know. That's why River Cottage is yeah. an institution because it is because it, of that. Because he's that a, leadership, you know. And he started Instagram only a couple of months ago. Yeah. And like overnight he had a bazillion followers. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> but he, I guess he'd resisted for so long. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he goes swimming every morning in a freezing pond or something. He does. Cool stuff. And he does. And, and, and that place, River Cottage, is, you know, it's just, it's magic. It's not mm. just the TV. Mm. It's, it's a genuinely magic place. And that comes from leadership. And we need, you know, that leadership. That kind of leadership, that that impact, that empowering kind of leadership, mm. you know, um, because obviously he's not there every day anymore, you know, and that and that's the reality. But his team, all of his team at that place, you know, Stuart, who who is one of um, one of the owners of the college, who's also an architect, incredible. They're they're all as passionate and enthusiastic and give a shit. Everyone that works there gives a shit, mm. and that's the important thing, you know, hiring those people that. Are good at the shit that you're not good at, and but at the end of the day, if you don't have people that have the same values and morals and integrity and authenticity as you, then yeah, it's nothing. It's a good good point. I mean, you got to have a similar character, not sort of character, similar character, but certainly um, similar um, values, but different skills. That's, yes, I guess that's the important yes. thing. Yep. Talk about skills. You just mentioned leadership, a word that you know we don't use enough generally. Um, who are who are some of the I guess thinking more at home here in Australia. Who, given that we haven't been anywhere for twelve more months, you know, who who are sort of in your eye leaders in in your world at the moment that you you're supporting, you're seeing sort of coming up through the ranks. My leaders are, are at the moment those people that are my mum and my my partner and you know. Mm. My very close to home, my very close to home people at the moment because I don't, you know, I'm not getting to go anywhere. You know, this is a person who, you know, I'm was on a plane every few weeks, which I also have issues with from a carbon footprint perspective. But mm. the work I was doing was really important, so it's a that's a bit of a whole other topic there. But there are so many amazing people in Australia, so many amazing people. We have in and in South Australia, um, you know, I've got. I've got people right here in my community like Ella and Chris at Little Bunyip have just put in a 2,000 um, uh, wattle seed orchard, 2,000 trees, wattle seed orchard. You've got people like Pelissa Anderson in, out in Byron, you mm. know, who, yep. who's incredible. Um, you know, she's just been head down, bum up, doing her thing for, for years and years and years, you know. Obviously you've got Rod, Rod and Sev down in Tassie, you've got, um, you know, oh god, there's so there's so many amazing people doing amazing things, and I don't think, and these are just people that are just head down, you know, just, just doing their thing in their in their little community. And I think if I can say there's anything positive out of out of COVID, is that people are working closer to home in their community because they can't go anywhere, and they realise the importance of working in their own community and the impact it can have. Doing it in your own community, and you know that, and that takes me to a little aha moment that happened that I didn't realize at the time that I sort of went, oh yeah, and it was Alice Waters who said to me because I wanted to create my granny skills program and and you know create this model that would be replicated all over the world, and I was blah blah blah, and Alice <laughs> was like, do it in your community, do it well, create a model, 
and everyone else will come and take it and do mm. it in their own in their own community. That's the only way you're going to have anything successful. And at the time, I thought, oh, but, you know, my my itchy yep. pants self was like, oh, but, but take blah, over the world, blah, blah, blah. you know. And now that couldn't be true. Mm. And now that's exactly what we're doing. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around the kitchen table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash the kitchen table. And we look forward to sharing a yarn with you. Now let's get back to this week's episode. So let's get to that. Um, back to your journey. Um, amazing events overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, making a mark in the world, you know, and you, you came home at some point. Yeah, I did um, with a really awful boyfriend. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other story. <laughs> we need a different podcast for that with a different title. <laughs> What's well, sort of a relationship? Um, I don't know. Oh, the, God, I think the, he just wanted a visa, put de- it that way. The degenerative journey, maybe. <laughs> yeah, the degenerative, exactly. <laughs> he was, oh, God, that's a whole other, yeah, that's a different podcast and that's mm. a Different time slot. So, um, <laughs> so <laughs> what happened is, so I lost my great grandmother, Lil, um, and she was a hundred when she passed away, and this was around two thousand and eight, nine. And um, when she passed away, I realized I had this other harm, aha moment, which was that my mum kept me a little box of her thing, a little shoe box, and she came to London on a trip and gave me this box. And so I go scurrying through this box, opening, hoping for a diamond or an inheritance check or something, <laughs> none of that. Um, but what was in there was this little stack of certificates and this little medal, and it turned out my great-grandmother was this award-winning baker in the 30s wow. in the women's own competition, which is like Women's Day, but in the, in the UK. So she's a London woman, you know, Cockney, 4 foot 11, absolute presence in a room of a woman, um, total matriarch of our family. and. So the certificate, she was this award-winning baker for her Victoria sponge. And in that moment, <laughs> I'm not only heartbroken because she's gone, I'm also, my heart shatters like nothing else because I went, mm. shit, I work in food. I didn't even know she could cook. I don't know how to make that Victoria sponge. What the? Yeah. So my aha moment is I did not spend enough time with my gra- great-grandmother I didn't know any of her stories. I had none of her traditions passed down to me. I cannot be the only person that has regret. So that was the start of this granny skills idea, that plus having worked with Alice and Michael Pollan and hearing these little plants of nuggets of information around, if your great-grandmother doesn't recognise it as food, it's mm. not. Our land girls, our sustain, most sustainable generation was my grandmother's, and that's not because um, – they were hipsters and it was trendy to eat locally and seasonally. That's because they had no bloody choice. It was complete necessity. And so if I think to the most sustainable generation thus far for me, it's my grandmother. They were frugal. They didn't waste food and they still don't because that was a habit that was formed at an important point in time and a habit that has stuck. So if you look at all of those women and men 
they could all grow food. They could all, you know, mostly. I mean, some of them were shit cooks. Let's not get, get me wrong. <laughs> but that, that's why I started the Granny Skills Movement because the idea was that if we lived more like our grandmother's generation, we would be more sustainable and we would be in a much better place health-wise, community-wise, because we'd probably know our neighbours because they had a lemon tree and I wanted some lemons or they had some apricots and I could swap it. You know, that was that beautiful way of living, that thrifty, frugal way that we now want to live, mm. you know. And my nan didn't have a man bun, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> she was not a hipster and still is not a hipster. <laughs> she thinks she is. Um, but, you know, that whole – that was – so I started this Granny Skills movement in the UK by – Firstly, I started the London Wandsworth branch of the um, WI. I was the youngest founding president of the Women's Institute, which is like the CWA. Oh, in cool. UK. And, and that had been around for a while. Yeah, long time. Yeah, right. And um, I remember sitting in Royal Albert Hall at the big annual general meeting and seeing this sea of grey <laughs> and, and one of the women next to me goes, you are definitely the youngest member we've ever had. <laughs> yeah. And, and from now there's tons of young WIs all over London um, and, and, so and, 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 and CWA over here too, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think totally. I and that was because I wanted to learn how to make bloody jam in a Victoria sponge because yeah. I didn't learn how to make it, and I yep. did. But that was foundationally what started the Granny Skills movement and because I wanted to live like that generation. So then I moved back to Australia and this Granny Skills idea became more of a, right, I don't want it to be a nice fluffy idea. Let's all be Granny, you know, get some Granny Skills. I... um founded a, a CWA branch in North Adelaide, started do a P, doing a PhD in the topic, and I wrote my first book, which was called Like Grandma Used to Make, and that was in 2013. And um, that sort of all started that that journey, which was this granny skills idea, which I still sort of is a big part of my work today. It's just mm-hmm. through a different avenue, and that's how through one. So that's, let's go to that then. Is there anything in the between coming back, setting that up? Yep. And Wandu, is there something? Yeah, else? yeah. So um, I there's actually a whole lot there. Yeah, I I I, <laughs> I wrote a few more books. I wrote five more books on natural living, so yeah, the art of art of the natural yeah. home yeah. series. Yeah. Because what I realised it wasn't just food mm. the way our grandmothers lived. It was everything. You know, my nan cleaned with salt and lemon and bicarb. Mm. And if I'm going to, yeah. you know, put my money where my mouth is, so so to speak, I can't just be existing in this tiny monocultural food world. It has to be my whole being. Home, um, homesteading. Homesteading, way, isn't it? completely. Yeah. More um, of a US word. But, uh, it is yeah. a US word, but it's such a good word, yeah, you know. Totally. And so I started running workshops and teaching people how to make cleaning products and skincare products and 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 did a bit of TV and writing and, you know, all sorts of amazing work. Um, and then I met Damien. Mm. How long ago was that? So that was eight years, and no, we're not married. <laughs> That's another podcast. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> okay. um, your friend, your yeah, male friend. Yeah, I know, I know, my man friend. Hey, I'm so, going to have one of those. Yeah, eat the hags, eat the hag. We mm. love hags. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I don't know if I can eat with my mouthful. But, so good. Um, so <laughs> I met Damien, and this was probably my biggest aha moment, and that is because he taught me he didn't teach me, but I learned that I was a bit of a hypocrite. So here's this girl who's been standing on a soapbox, getting arrested, telling everyone to eat local food for the best part of 10 years. I live in Australia and I never tried local food. 
Local, local food. Local, truly mm. local food. Mm. You cannot exist in a world where you are a local food eater, local, whatever you want to call yourself, mm. if you've not tried anything that's Indigenous yeah. to your own country. So I'd had kangaroo once, and that was when my French friends cooked it for me because they ate it all the time when they lived here. Of course they did. Yeah, because it was exotic and exciting. Well, because they, to them it was yeah. local. Why wouldn't I eat kangaroo yeah. if it's from here? And um, so they cooked, and, and I'd never had lemon myrtle, and I didn't know what wattle seed was. And I have this spice pantry in my own back garden and these superfoods in my own back garden, and I never tried them. And so here I am. I meet Damien, who's Indigenous, and I felt like a massive freaking hypocrite. Did he say something to you or you, no. just, or you just went, oh, my God? Mm. It sort of was dawned on you. It was just a you. huge moment of – and it was because <laughs> I basically made him go out with me. Um, <laughs> All the table ties around his wrist. <laughs> a pillow That's over a different here. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so effectively I, want, I said I'd like to cook you dinner and um, I went – I wanted to cook him something special. Mm. And so – he also has Sri Lankan heritage, so I made him curry, but using native Australian spices. And I'd never, at the time, I was actually living with two guys who worked um, for then Arana, so I was starting to get into native foods. I was a bit excited by them, but I, but it was all around the same time I met Damien, so it was this feeling like a hypocrite for more more ways than one because of this native food stuff. And I cooked him this meal, and and he hadn't had much of the stuff that I cooked either. Mm. So I just sort of went, oh, my God, like I have to do something about this. And, and and then, you know, time went on and I kept working in and around granny skills and people used to ask him what I did for a living and he'd go, I don't know, she bloody hangs out with grannies or something. <laughs> I still don't really know what she does for a living. <laughs> and it wasn't until in 2014 when I was in America in D.C., working at the Smithsonian, and Damien's pop got um, passed away. And he'd been diagnosed with dementia about a year before that and went very quickly. And we both then together had this aha moment when he went, shit, I get why you're protecting these granny skills now. Mm. And I've just lost my pop who I'll never have anything scribbled down on a piece of paper because for him everything was passed down orally. I had all the recipes scribbled down in the book. And we went, shit, what are we going to do about this? So there was a common out, common objective or, yeah. or catalyst there in a way. Totally. Mm. And that was we have to protect his culture and his language. And Damien always talks about if you lose the food, you lose the language. If you lose the language, you lose the food. Yeah. And in particular, if you lose the language, you lose the food. Um, and so we started Wandu with this mission of championing Australian native ingredients and protecting culture through something that everyone does three times a day, if they're lucky enough, and that is eating. Mm. And so we just started with a really simple tea brand because we figured lots of these ingredients are going to be like they were to me, which was shit. I've never even tried them and I work in food. Yeah. So we started it with herbal teas and we um, you know, now have a home and body range as well. But our mission has always been the same and that is to regenerate culture, community, tradition, health and soil. and through these beautiful Australian native foods and botanicals. And the soil is one of the most important components for us, and that is because if we don't have these plants in the soil, then our soil's mm. basically 
Yep, we totally. need these plants to exist mm. here in Australia. And we need them for more than just environment. We need them for, for culture as well. And um, so we created this brand and kind of it's, you know, it's been going for since about 20, the idea since about 2014. Um, and it's only really been since I got back from, from Yale that I've really felt comfortable in the brand. And that is because I helped create a brand that to me was, it is an indigenous owned company. But it was, to me, I had a bit of resentment, I think it's safe to say, because I felt like this white girl who created this brand that was championing Damien's culture and not my own. Mm. And it wasn't until I spent all this time at Yale in this leadership program as a world fellow, which I was so grateful to have been chosen out of like 3,000 people and one of the first Australians to spend this time among leaders in their own field. And the founder of Patagonia, the amazing brand Patagonia, said to me um, when I did some some mentor, he, he meant, did some mentoring for me and um, I took one of his classes and he said to me, I sense resentment in what you've created. I said, yeah, I just feel bad being the white girl talking about native food, right? And he said, have you ever considered that you've created a co-culture brand? Mm. And that was this light bulb for me. I ring Damien and he goes, have you not been, I've been telling you that for like four <laughs> years, that it's Don't a co-culture brand. Yeah. I just think I didn't, couldn't hear it. Mm. Sometimes it takes a real outsider to say something to you that, Makes you go, oh yeah, you know. Sometimes when your partner, you know, totally, you shut down. We all do it. So we have this co-culture brand. You know, it's my culture, it's his culture, it's our our son's culture that we're championing. Because he, he, I mean, your son, he is, he is co-culture. He is co-culture, isn't he? He is. Yeah. Yep. He absolutely so, is, and we, you know, that they're, they're I'm. I don't feel like that white girl standing up there now feeling feeling like I'm doing the wrong thing, which I did for a really long time because I'm doing things the right way and I always have my benchmark and that's Damien. You know, if I'm offending or saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing culturally, he'll pull me up on it in a heartbeat, you know, and I, and then I learn from it. And surely that's the important thing, right, is is – doing things with integrity and authenticity and asking permission and learning and sharing, you know, and um, now I'm just so proud of what we've created. And this is, this is my local food system, you know, mm. and if I'm going to work in the local food movement, it has to include the local food. It's really interesting, isn't it, that, <clears throat> you know, people, I'm sure, you know, using the word co-culture that, you know, for some would be offended because they would perceive you combining, you know, co-creating with different cultures as offensive mm -hmm. to to the Indigenous culture. You know, go, well, you're, you're bastardising it, you're cross-pollinating it or you're diluting it or you're, you know, that is my sense given some conversations mm -hmm. we've sort of, we've sort of touched on and what, I sort of see in the world is mm -hmm. this sort of um, it's a it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? This sort of um, 
call it cultural appropriation, call it, um, I don't even know what to call it, but it's sort of, I think it's a, a symptom of something that I don't know is very good. You know, this sort of, um, can we talk about that? I, th- I think, uh, how can I not be talking about this culture when my son is Indigenous? Mm. Like, how can I not be proud? Like, how can I not want to champion that? I want him to grow up as a proud Indigenous boy. Mm. I want him to champion this. If he's not going to get that from his mum and his dad, I don't want him to be proud of my culture too, mm. you know? If he can't get that from his parents, then where on earth is he going to get permission to be that person in the world? And, um, and, and he's not, not as though he in his life or you as mum or Damien as dad is, is ignoring or putting down or putting aside, you know, the other culture. Yeah. This, is, this is, you know, um, that's not what you're doing or saying, but it's interesting that some people just jump on that and, and go, yeah. you're on the bandwagon, yep. you're being disrespectful, you're yep. appropriating a culture and you don't have the right to do it. Yep. You know, and and don't of- get me wrong, I've gotten that. You know, I've copped it. I mm. have. Mm. Um, but surely I'm not sharing anything that I've never had permission to share. Mm. Mm. I'm fighting my booty off to protect the IP of these foods and, and these botanicals for our Indigenous people. I'm not trying to own it. No one owns, you know. Can't own it. I'm not trying to own it. I'm trying to support a system whereby our Indigenous knowledge is so important for our planet to exist. And I mean that in, in any country whereby Indigenous peoples were talking about. And, you know, when I was at Yale, I had the same conversations with Native Americans, with Ecuadorian um, Indigenous peoples. The same thing has happened everywhere in the world. And we all need to be aware of that and we all need to... If the rest of Australia isn't aware of the issues, then we can't do anything to, to, to protect it. We can't protect the IP of these foods if people don't know that mm. there is a problem to start with. And if we don't all talk about it, um, then how does anyone know? You know, it's like that. I talk about this moment where I finally got the courage to ask Damien's dad about his culture. It took me six months to ask about anything to do with Aboriginality or anything because I felt embarrassed and ashamed of the fact that I didn't know anything because I grew up without learning language at school, without knowing, you know, what country I was on, without knowing anything about Aboriginal anything. You know, I had Aboriginal friends growing up but I still didn't know anything and it was so embarrassing for me to sit in this room it's like an elephant in the room and I feel like a lot of Australians feel like this, that we're so embarrassed that we don't know anything that we just don't say anything at all. We just ignore it. And that is the worst thing we can do. Surely it's better to ask a question and feel like a dick and say the wrong thing and be corrected and then learn from it than to not say anything at all and then we never make any progress. Mm. So I finally got the courage to talk to Damien's dad and and it, it was a food question because I know food and and then he started talking about something. now. Damien's dad and I have bonded over food. Damien's dad is reconnected to food. Damien's dad, when he's out working, out bush, will find stuff that he remembers from his childhood and he'll bring it and share it with me and Damien because he's now almost got this, not permission, but this place to reconnect with culture. 
Damien has reconnected, not reconnected with culture, but he's more connected with culture than when I met him seven years ago, eight years ago, because of this thing we've created, this important thing that we've created. Um, and so have some of Damien's family members, not, you know, that just happened naturally, but because I finally put my bullshit aside and went, all right, say the wrong thing and learn from it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a good point. <clears throat> the um, awkwardness and the embarrassment and the um, not knowing quite how to approach it. I mean, I'm sure, you know, some, some people just don't give a shit at all and it's mm. like, ah, you know, I'm happy with meat and three veg yeah. and that whole world of... And that's fine too, That's That's know? fine too. But for those that are sort of looking to step into that space um, for whatever reason, and, and I was, um, you know, re- referenced this more recently, earlier this year, was, was privy to a... Uh, a gathering of Indigenous um, people in and elders in, up in the Northern Rivers in New South Wales and, you know, privy to some some ritual and ceremony that I hadn't seen before and it was just a beautiful thing. It was you know, a couple hundred people there or so and it was based around the regenerative sacred or sacred regenerative, mm-hmm. you know, um, as part of the Na- National um, Regenerative Agriculture Day um, events. And, you know, I... Um, stood there at one point and and just said, "I feel really underqualified as a as a farmer in Australia to talk about agriculture." You know, it hadn't dawned on me before, but it was the reverence, the 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 ritual, the and we weren't even in a paddock or anything. We were in a in a town hall. Yeah, you know, we weren't there eating anything. It was just wow. There's a there's a whole lot of stuff I don't know, and I was had a sense of embarrassment and and you know awkwardness and a, and and. And really underqualified, you know, which is a which became a new reference point for me, and so you know, conversations have ensued and and some you know some friendships forming at mm-hmm. the moment, um, you know that I trust will be will develop. And one we had um, Paul House, who's who's um, from Canberra, from mm-hmm. that area of, the, of you know, Australia, and and he um, Indigenous um, fellow who's lovely, lovely man. He came to Hanamino. Um, in uh, Wiradjuri country there where we are and he, you know, he welcomed us to country. He showed us some beautiful things. You know, we we, we, we got stringy bark bark and made some twine, mm-hmm. you know, and he did a little ceremony. It was just beautiful and had my you know, kids there and Ange and it was just a, you know, wonderful thing and it was, you know, still a sense of, you know, being underqualified and, and, and it's not so much embarrassment is the wrong word but just... Just sort of humbled and going, yeah. oh God, I just don't know this stuff. And I and I walk that ground and I see those stringy barks and I see the, you know, the spear grass and you can make this beautiful thread out of spear grass, almost like string and and these things. And it was, it was you know, it had to, it meant to, ha- it was meant to happen. Yeah. Nari Pryor, um, lovely fellow there at um, Nuru Farm near Yass, you know, he he really introduced me to Paul and you have to thank Murray for that introduction. But but it was time. Yeah, you know, it was time that I learnt. These things and and this whole different perspective of what's there, so much more to learn. We've got the most sophisticated agricultural learnings on the planet. Mm. You know, you've got mm. tens of thousands of years of people keeping a land going, and thousands of plants, edible plants, and animals, and proteins, and nuts, and seeds. I mean, they're not still here without. There having been something pretty special in place before it. Healthy you know? food. 
and, and a race doesn't exist 70,000 years mm. later if not bloody good for you, you know. And I always talk about the fact that, you know, we're willing to spend 30 bucks, and I was saying this to you earlier, yeah. we're willing to spend 30 bucks on a bag of goji berries flown <laughs> halfway across the world, but we won't spend 30 bucks on a bag of Davidson Plum that has more antioxidants than said berry, is local, truly local, and starts a cultural conversation for us about that particular Indigenous people that grew that and harvested that and, you know, ate it to protect them from colds and flus, you know. Because they knew. Because they knew. Mm. You know, how, how <laughs> you know, we've got a, a pantry in our back garden full of superfoods mm. and, and we'd rather buy them from somewhere we else. We don't need to go, go overseas. No, we don't. Let's get, I just want to sort of, from your experience, you know, for people, I mean, I guess not unlike myself who, who are looking to, you know, step into understanding Indigenous culture more and, and engaging with Indigenous people and really, you know, to not just to take information or to, yes. to, to really understand important. and go, oh, I'm just going to do this at home, but, yep. but also contribute, you know, and, and, and there to be a, a yeah, a, a transaction's the wrong word, but there to be a relationship that is, that is, is mutually beneficial in a really positive and culturally um, significant way, you know how 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 do we do how do us whiteies do that? You know, well, I think you've got to start in your own community, right? You've got to meet people, and you've got to build relate. You don't, you can't just swan in and be like, oh, I want to learn about native <laughs> food because I want to set up a you know nutritionist practice and be you, able to yeah. use these herbs and stuff to make people better. It doesn't work like that, you know. This is. We have to build relationships for the right reasons to learn and to share, but remember that we only share what we're allowed to share. You know, these are practices that have been passed down orally for for th- tens of thousands of years, and there's some seriously shit things happened in the last 200 years, you know, where trust has been broken and we've got a lot of trust to get back in this, you know, in, in this co-culture existence. And we've got to remember that different cultures do things differently, right? Um, and the beautiful thing I find about, and, and there's also hundreds of different Aboriginal cultures within Aboriginal yeah. Australia we, and Torres Strait Islander Australia. Can't forget that. And each of those have their own cultural practices, their own language, their own foods. So that's why... It makes our world smaller when we think of it that way because we actually have to learn about our own Aboriginal nation of the country that we live on. We can't just go, oh, I'm going to learn about Aboriginal culture, full stop. It doesn't work like that. So it's really quite nice that it can make your, your community, make you look within your community when you're learning and I think that's the best place to start, you know. Um, and there are loads of amazing groups. There are, there are rangers you can talk to. There are land care groups that you can talk to. There are local, you know, native title bodies. Do, just reach out, you know, try and try and just, I think if you do things with the right heart space and the right integrity, that's obvious when learning and sharing and, mm. and it's the same in any culture or any transfer of knowledge, you know. If you're just a taker, People figure that out pretty quickly, you know. Mm. If you're not a, if you just come in to take something, you know, people are going to see straight through it. But I think 
plants are a really good way to start. You know, find your local native nursery. They're going to be able to point you in the right direction for sure. And and that's a really good good start. Grow something, you know, at home. Whether you live on the land like we're lucky enough to or in a in an apartment, you know, we used to grow um, native foods in our apartment in Bowdoin, right in the middle of Adelaide. We had 10 different things growing on our balcony and I found going to native nurseries was the best way to, you know, the, the easiest way to learn, to start to learn and to learn how to connect with, with um, Indigenous groups. Going to events, you know, if there's a festival on that's got storeholders, go to these events, talk to people. They're a really great place to start. You know, going to going to events that that um, share and celebrate Aboriginal culture or art, or you know, you might not necessarily be able to start with food, but you can start with art, and that's going to lead you in the right direction. But start with your community, start start in your own neighbourhood, learn a few words, learn what country you're on, start using what country you're on. You know, when you write your address, you know, just little things like that make such a difference. Make an effort. It's no different to going to France mm. and walking into a bakery and saying, hi, I want a baguette, you know. <laughs> yeah. Learn to say bonjour, learn to bonjour, say merci, you know. Yeah. Exactly, just make a bloody effort. Don't be embarrassed that you don't know anything. Mess up, learn from it. Is, is there any um, sort of, I say, general etiquette that sort of applies? I mean, etiquette's a bit of a vague word as well, but, you know, that, that – because that's for me, and it's a it, Hamish Mackay, a, a biodynamic, um, you know, um, educator, and stoked that you're coming to our course mm. tomorrow, you and Damo. Um, he's he's I wouldn't say he's well versed, but he certainly is understanding and considerate of that. Is there any sort of general, and I'm, again, I'm using the word etiquette that that you know one could be good if they had no, some understanding of that. You know, this the, the words you use or the approach or the I don't know. Maybe there isn't. Maybe it's just all too broad. But I think I think the thing to consider is what country you live on, and mm. and always having in the back of your mind that one size does not fit all. Mm. You know, we have hundreds of different nations and and different dialects within those different nations. Yeah. You know, um, so learning how to say hello and thank you and what country you're on is a beautiful start. You mm. know, teaching a kid that, asking at your local you know, at your kid's primary school, do they sing a welcome to country in language? Do they learn language? Planting a bush tucker garden in the local school, you know, by engaging with some, some local TOs, some local traditional owners to come and, and help with that um, and just being respectful. It's no, Like I said, it's no different to going to another country mm. and being respectful. Just remember that you've got hundreds of different countries in your own country and Go forth like you would if you went to Italy or France or Spain or you know Latvia, you know. And we're on country here. It's I looked at it and just I wasn't even sure how to mm. pronounce W. It starts with W, doesn't it? No, no. no. M. M. N. N. Yeah, from Nigeria country. Oh, maybe I was in some. Maybe I was in Barossa. Maybe, maybe I was looking at the Barossa. Oh no! No, don't worry. There's, Say there's it again. Nigeria. Nigeria. Oh, I must have got that wrong. It's N-J-U-D. Oh, no, I've, I've got that totally wrong then. All right. That's not cool. It's learning. It is learning. Um, and just just about being on country as well, when Paul House was at at um, at, um, uh, at our place at, at Burua, and that was fascinating because he said Burua to me, was, was I was taught that Burua was plain turkey, mm. and he said, oh, it's, it's also, I'm not sure it's also or, or it actually is fog. 
hog over there. And that was, for me, like in the, a lifetime of that just turned on its head. And he also said, which was one of the most beautiful parts of the of, of the time he spent with, with us, was um, he spoke the language. You know, he spoke his, his Wiradjuri you know, language there or, or dialect, I, mm. I guess it might have been more, and... and um, and and that was that just blew my mind in the first place. And then as we sort of finished and you know the sun was setting and we were getting all packed up, and we were chatting about it after he said, "Oh, you you might get a visit, some visits now, you know, because that was a, probably the first time in hundred two maybe I don't know hundred fifty two hundred years, God knows how long that 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 language was heard by that land, wow. you know. And it was just I went, oh my God, this is that so was much it bigger than us, isn't it? Yeah, so much bigger than us. Just, to, just, just even contemplating that, that the, the, the spirits, the spirits. Well, I mean, there's lots of different spirit yeah. and nature and elemental spirits, but the sort of the, the people, indigenous spirits of that land, were potentially awoken mm-hmm. because they heard their language, you know. Yep. And that was just a beautiful yep. thing. You know? Damien, so Damien's Adamathna and Diri. So, um, he, his grandmother was Diri, and his his pop. So the Flinders Range is the rock people, and uh, and I hear him, Damien's pop. I'm sorry, Damien's dad and uncles and aunties speaking the language all the time, and it's just seriously beautiful. So we just we're trying to find someone to teach us the language, you know, properly, so that Mali will learn it. And um, so we just use you know words every now and then when to to reiterate the words for him. But um, we're really hoping to be able to learn the language in full. Before it's gone, you know. I think there's a website um, that is. I have to I have to look it up now. Mm-hmm. One I, I can't remember. I think it was Paul House. I was talk, uh, speaking with about with someone else, and they there was a um, trying to remember where I picked this up on. There was an organisation that is, you know, sort of I guess um, collecting or or sort of um, uh, you know. Yeah, collecting the the language, different languages, and and so they're not lost. Mm-hmm. You know, there, so collating. Lots of amazing people out there doing incredible work around around language, and we're lucky enough to have the dictionary, the Adamatha dictionary. So we we will always be, you know, have that if anything. But um, we just really there used to be these immersion sort of camps where you'd go out to the Finns for six weeks at a time and just only speak language and. We're trying to see if that will happen again, so that we can take Mally mm. when he's when he's speaking and and just immerse ourselves in it for for six weeks at a time. Um, but yeah, they're they're <laughs> the, the weirdest thing in the world. When I was at Yale, was I got chummy with one of the linguistics um, professors there, Claire, and and she had the Adnimathan dictionary, like an online version that no one else has. Really? They had it at Yale of all places because she speaks like five different. Australian Indigenous languages, and she was wow. like, "Yeah, we put this together here at Yale." And I was like, what? "Wow, at least somebody is there, you know." Oh, that's right. Is it? Mm. Is it? And I, I remember hearing one of the Adnimathan elders. She said to me when we were interviewing her, um, she said, "I would rather some white kids from St Peter's College in Adelaide come up here and be interested and want to, you know, learn some stuff and pass it on than it be lost forever." Oh, totally. You know, totally. And and. There are obviously people that, that are the opposite of that that don't want to pass it down to any to anyone other than Aboriginal people, and I also respect that. But yeah. um, you know, just hearing her say say that to me made me think, okay, well, 
I have to um, go. I have to tread lightly here and and go about it the right the right way. You know, not everyone wants to share it with me or with any other non-indigenous person, and I get that. So it's about being respectful, having those conversations. You know, it's the same with the food thing, isn't it? Yeah. As well, like that. Let's let's not have that wisdom and that that medicine cabinet be lost. Yes. You know. But please. let's not take advantage no, of it either. Totally. You know. Um, and that's where that fine line exists of the way we talk about our products and what they do mm. or what they were used for. We tend to talk less about what they were used for and, and the science of it and the story of it, but not in a direct way that's going to offend or upset or take away from the IP of, of that food or that botanical because we've been told it by uncle or auntie or whatever, you know. It's a fine line between support and exploitation, isn't it? Totally. And, you know, you've only got to look to what's going on in the commercialisation of the native food industry. Mm-hmm. When you look at some of the mob, like, that have been in a court battle with Pepsi-Cola slash Mary Kay Cosmetics for the last almost decade because Mary Kay Cosmetics are trying to patent the term highest source of vitamin C on the planet for the kakadu plum or the gubbinge <laughs> because they use it in their cosmetics and they know how bloody good it is. Are they Pepsi, who is it? Pepsi-Cola owned Mary Kay Cosmetics. Is Mary Kay an Australian? No, it's an American. All oh, right. And so they're trying to patent it and they have been for years and they've been in a legal cheeky, battle behind the scenes, you know, and it's complete and utter I won't say much because I'll probably get sued next, mm. but you know what I mean? Like that sort of shit is is wrong on all levels. And it's, it's like that that's that screams exploitation, doesn't yes. it? Yes, and that's the difference, you know. Whereas I talk about Kakadu Plum all the time or Gubbinge because I use it because it's bloody amazing, you know. Mm. I take mm. it when I fly, when I land, when I'm feeling run down. It is the highest source of vitamin C on the planet mm. and it does work and there was a reason that people that our indigenous people ate it just before cold season rolled around, <laughs> you know. Come on, they know their stuff, don't yeah. they? And, and for us to, you know, um, whether it's sort of agricultural practices or the actual plants themselves, would be foolish not to um, understand, you yeah. know. And again, respectfully and and appropriately, you know. But where where do we? And this is going to be the issue going forward. Is the commercialization of such an amazing plant mm. when it was used for environmental and cultural practices, the harvest of it. So it wasn't grow it wasn't perp it wasn't replanted so that it could be used for that. It was used for two other different reasons that are very different to us using it for medicine or food. And we want to commercialise it. How does that work, you know? Yeah, so so, so it wasn't things. traditionally grown to be traded. Yeah. Is that right? Is, well, sorry. I don't know about the trade side of it. That I'm not an expert there, but all yeah. I know is, you know, we're, tr- we're commercialising it at the moment um, and if it, it was hard, traditionally some of the nations would use would harvest it for a, a cultural reason. Ah, uh, okay. As a cultural practice. Yep. And, and some, then for environmental reasons yeah, or whatever, okay. then where is that line drawn of, us mm. what's, a, what's appropriate to to be commercialising it go? for? Yeah, correct, and that's going to be the issue with a lot of these plants and and botanicals. You know, 
And that's why it's so important to involve and make sure the ownership is is with our Indigenous people of, of, of this stuff, of the IP at the very least. Mm. And how do we have more communities involved and more Indigenous employees involved and owners of in, Indigenous businesses involved, et cetera, et cetera, so that those practices aren't lost or forgotten or pushed to the side so that we can commercialise something. Is the government lending any support to this sort of thing? <sighs> Of a double edged sword. <laughs> Is that a different podcast? Uh, <laughs> We've got about six new ones. That we'll do a Watch the space. Yeah. Um, there are some good things going on. There's some few things going on. Yeah, you know, right. it's, yep. it's um, it's, yeah, we're we're in a we're in this period where what we do next is going to set the set set the tone and the scene for decades and and mm. generations to come. Mm. And there's some very important moves to be made and very important decisions to be made by our leaders, our Indigenous leaders, and I don't know how they let this roll. That sounds like a good a next good question. What do you, what are you irate about at the moment? Oh, God. <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> Not having enough sleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, many things. but. I try to be more about I'm I'm less angry and more keen to see people make little changes. I want to see millions of people make little changes rather than 20 people doing things perfectly in the world, you know. I'm I'm definitely angry that that our government hasn't taken more action from a climate. I mean, climate change is is my bad, you know, my baby. Mm. By way of my masters is in climate change, and everything we're doing moving forward is about creating climate resilient communities through native food and indigenous knowledge. I'm angry about the fire stuff, about Which, more action not being taken post the last bushfires. Fires, yeah. Um, I'm in my local CFS, and you know. We don't, we haven't yet taken enough action, I don't think, to use Indigenous knowledge in our fire system in Australia. Um, Oli Costello and people like that uh, finally getting the recognition that they should have been mm. given for, for a very long time. I'm all for... We're going to do some cultural burning here and hopefully have some amazing elders come and teach and share and work with our local fireys. There are some open-minded people. I wish there were some more. Mm. Um, the leadership that was shown in New South Wales during the bushfires was incredible. I wish we had more more leaders like that. Um, I'm angry about that, that no action was taken post that. That, that, that frustrates me immensely. I was at, at, in Yale sitting there watching my country burn, you know, um, while other people in my my fellowship group, you know, all of them were from different countries, Syria, Iraq, you know, there was shit going on all over the world it seemed. There always is, but I was just watching my country burn and feeling angry and helpless and um, determined mm. for that Indigenous knowledge to be utilised in more than just the food space, you know. It's, a, it's an interesting one that 
is so so many different levels. I'm also irate that you ate all the hags. Hey, the no, because that was my next question about the, your project, and that's a, that's an example of co culture, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm no, because I can't I talk them. and eat pre chocks. Well, <laughs> talk at the same time. So you guys, I won't. I'm gonna do, I just want to get back to bushfires, but I'm gonna. Mm. Well, I. Well, I not struggle through a Hague's chocolate. <laughs> and and that's got the... the uh, no, no, that's that, just... That they're, they're Apricocks. They're not our collaboration, oh. but you had some of that But earlier. you guys have collaborated in a wonderful example of co-culture. Mm-hmm. Totally. Collaboration. Yep. Um, what have you done with them? So we are doing a three-year collaboration with Hague's, which is a 100-year-old institution. If you don't know Hague's... <laughs> I reckon the best chocolate in the universe. Definitely. And and they're a, you know, her- they're a heritage brand totally. um, here in South Australia. They've only done three or four collaborations in 100 years and we're, we're one of them. And um, we are working with them to create a series of beautiful chocolates that include our native botanicals. And the first two were a Davidson Plum Dark and a um, Finger Lime Milk. Um but the whole point of the collaboration is is education and story and co-culture mm. and sharing these beautiful things from our back garden in a way that will hopefully inspire curiosity for people. You know, seeing a finger lime on the front packet of a, of a brand like that might make people go, oh, what's a finger lime? Then they might go and learn where a finger lime came from and what the local word for it is and how they can use it and that, they don't need to use Tahitian limes anymore. They can just use, you know, the native one, the finger one. And um, being able to work with a brand like that that is such an institution and so knowledgeable in their world, mm. you know, we've learnt so much from them too and, and it's incredible and we're really proud of it and we're very excited for the next the next bar that we get to create with them. Which I can't say what it is, but it's very exciting. No, no, Stay tuned. So the finger limes, you know, you see them now occasionally in um, nurseries, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I guess that's that's okay. That's how, it's a commercialization yep. of it. I mean, that's going to end up in someone's backyard. Yep. That that's kind of you know probably replacing a Tahitian or a kaffir or something. Yeah, you know, so that's kind of a good thing. We're still, we're, but it's, it's better it's a, that it ends up in our backyard than than overseas. Like mm. Utah and Thailand and Malaysia are some of the biggest growers of finger lime. Really? Yeah. Like because the, we like let the, the seeds go. Yeah, like Hawaii. that. Oh, God, don't even get That's a whole other podcast. But yeah. And, you know, um, I don't know if you know this, but, um, you know, we have were talking one. about. Go on, have one. No, Go I can't. On. I can't. I'm embarrassed because I was talking <laughs> with one before. But you came in and said something about the Banksies this morning when you arrived. Or, and, you know, Israel is one of the biggest growers of Australian native flowers in the oh. world because we let our seed go. And now we have to bring them all from overseas. That's like technology, you know, um, mechanical, you know, inv- inventions and, and, and other digital or, you know, technology yep. with whatever reason, funds haven't been available, support hasn't been available, gone mm-hmm. offshore, yep. gone gangbusters, would have buy, buy it back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, but <laughs> when intellectual property is involved, IP of a plant, you know, That's, and yeah. and nothing is going back to its not owners, but it's it's you know it's, its rightful of place, yeah, the source right. of it, where all the knowledge is. Mm. You know, and the fact that you know we have to get all these native foods legalized because they're not considered traditional in Australia. That makes me all right. There's another mm. one. 
<laughs> technically only, you know, out. technically only ten of these beautiful native ingredients, native foods that we eat are legal. You know, so we all have to, all of us chefs and cooks and people have to work around loopholes. What do you mean legal? Legal. Legal to buy or use? Legal to buy, sell, eat. Ah, oh, because if we use something that's not in that ten, we might kill someone. That hasn't been scientifically proven, mm. even though sixty-five thousand years later, mm. our, you know. An elder says, yeah, eat this. How can that not be enough? Did rosemary ever get legalised? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> did it? I don't know. Maybe it did. Parsley. So call 1-800-300-678. Well, you know, it's, it's not unlike, it's a, it's a good point. It's not unlike, um, you know, someone gets, dare I say, sick from, you know, COVID vaccination. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's a predisposed sort of a condition and there's no correlation. Yeah. Uh, someone... Someone gets crook from, you know, a herb, a herbal remedy. Oh yeah. no, we can't be, we can't be having people have this stuff because it might kill them. This is, this is black market. This is, Correct. this is not regulated. This we can't have people it's like making the bloody these choices. Kazumazu, I was telling you about early, earlier. It's now black market cheese because it's got mold maggots in it. You know, has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. No yeah. non has ever died of it anywhere. No, that's right, I and mean, it's it is cray cray. And um, again, that that that's I mean, you know, that is probably that's another podcast is just you know diving into the madness. Yeah, the madness. Mm. You know, my nan would poke a chicken. The juices ran clear; it was cooked. Mm. She'd sniff a carton of milk. Not read a use by date. You know, <laughs> like we've just all gone mental. <laughs> we've gone. There's another thing that makes me irate. Sniff your bloody carton of milk. Don't look at the years by date. <laughs> Open your packet of pork. Stick, stick you know? your beak in there. Stick your beak in there. If it yeah. makes you vomit on the spot, then chuck it out. That's <laughs> Scrape right. Scrape them all off the top, you know? It's not, yeah, especially yogurt. Yogurt lasts for months after. I know. Oh, God. All sorts of stuff. I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, well, I've been known many a time to pull out a bit of meat out of the freezer. Yeah. It's, I, I can't remember last like when that animal was. Nineteen ninety six. Yeah, it was nineteen ninety six. And I say, oh well, if the, if the Mongolian herders who found that that frozen mammoth baby that was ten thousand years old is good enough for them, then, it, then it's fine. I remember I mean, opening a bottle of um, peaches with a, a neighbour um, years ago, and it was we we opened that that we probably opened that bottle ten years ago. So that so, yeah. so it was two thousand ten. His mother put that under the house in 1979. <laughs> Peaches. Well, they, so, they were absolutely delicious. I bet they were. Mm. And this is the thing, you know, like trust your gut, right? Totally. <sighs> Indigenous Australians were the oldest. Like they were fermenting mm. shit, you know. Mm. Come on. Mm. Um, and Bruce Pascoe obviously has done a yep. m- lot of amazing work in, in, in that space as yep. well. Yep. And, and in a beautiful way. I love the way Bruce... You know, it's not so much let bygones be bygones. He acknowledges the history, yep. acknowledges what happens, yep. but he's also a realist and he goes, you know what, if we're going to preserve, protect, encourage this in the future, we need to you know, call it co-culture or yep. collaborate. You know, yep. he's, I love his, his, his perspective on that, yeah. which is really healthy and really – Damien's like that too. Yeah. And I love listening to Damien talk about it. Mm. Hopefully you'll get to chat to Damien oh, on the podcast yeah, too. We will. Listening to Damien talk about, you know, the moving forward stuff is, is you know, Damien, you know, he puts it way more beautifully than me. But, yeah, it's um, there is so much precious knowledge that out there 
with our Indigenous people that they want to share mm. and that they want to protect and we need to collaborate and we need to create a safe space for that to be done in because there is bad blood and there is a lot of trust to be had. We have to build relationships and we have to be open and we have to have an open mind about the way we do that and we have to have an open heart and collaborate and not compete. Um, I think collaboration over competition needs to happen with everything, you know. For, for this native food industry to be an industry and not a cottage, cottage industry and not, you know, just something that we see on MasterChef every year, you know, we all need to collaborate. Talking about collaboration, um, let's what, – what, any projects coming up that you, you can let, let our nis, listeners in on um, that, are, that are, you know, you'd like – You'd like to share? Oh well, obviously the Hague's one is ongoing, which is really exciting. So we're so we're working on that. the The biggest project that we are working on is creating this this climate resilient community program here, starting in the Clare Valley in our own home. So we're planning a demonstration garden, and our goal is to turn Wadu into a cooperative. Mm. We have five sort of trial farmers who are willing to take the leap of faith with us and start to integrate native plants in with their already existing stock, like their sheep and, and their wheat and their crops. And then we plan on opening up our place to other farmers to show them that we can create a climate-resilient future here in the Clare Valley, adapt. As an example, we've just ripped up all of our almond trees because – we don't have water for them anymore, so we need to plant something else. So that's really our next big project is creating this space where people can learn, where we can continue to learn, where we can show people how they can use Indigenous knowledge for the better. Um, you know, the fire training, the the ranger training, the, the workshop space, all of that sort of stuff. Um, that's what we're most excited about. We're also working on a really incredible project um, with Ledger. Um, and QUT on creating a almost like a trust mark for the industry so that people know. It's like that amazing apple sticker that was created, you know, so we knew they were Aussie apples. It's the same thing, um, you know, we're creating a, a um, easy way for people to know if they're buying something that's ethically produced. So you, is that a certification, a verification? Yes, what it'll be a verification it? using blockchain sort of technology, yeah, you know, yeah. um, QR code sort of stuff so people can see the, the story as well, the mm. beautiful cultural story of where that garbage came from or that Davidson Plum came from or whatever. Um, we're working on that. We're, we're working on lots of really great – we're trying to put our effort and our time into things that have more of an impact than just – a product being put on the shelf, you know. What's the limiting factor for you to do that? Limiting factor? <laughs> Apart from my mortgaging being paid, having <laughs> <laughs> sleep. Um, I mean, is it is it is is it that funds need to be raised to support yeah, so the we, creation? So, of, yeah, so we it, we know, have just applied for some big grants, yeah, nice. um, hoping to get some funding to get the demonstration garden planted, to get more farmers on board, to get more seedlings grown for said farmers. Um, is that government funding? Government, private, if you're a philanthropist out there and you want yeah, to do something good. 
Um, we are having some great com- ecotourism conversations as well. Um, we're creating some some experiences that start in Clare and go out to country, out to the Flinders Ranges, to Damien's country. Damien's doing a lot more sort of um, sort of other work, education work around cultural awareness training and stuff. And I'm going to be doing a PhD on this climate resilient community through native food and indigenous knowledge um, uh, topic. I'm right. We're writing another book, a native food book. So our sure. next Wandu book comes out next June, mm. which is really exciting. So that one's more about substitution and being able to just quickly identify and understand how to replace something true. I keep saying traditional cool. <laughs> with with these. Well, you just said one out the back in your garden. Yeah, look, celery. we just did, yeah the well, the native celery and yeah. of normal celery. Yeah. You know, we planted this drinks garden that. Um, you know, there's all the beautiful things that can go into tea or in your cocktails, or your mocktails, or your cordials, and they're mm. all, you know, mm. they've replacing bush, but uh, traditional basil with bush basil, you know, just those easy ways for people to understand how to cook, learn how to cook with it a bit more. Um, so yeah, there's lots of really, really great things going on. And I think as long as things come back to our mission statement around regeneration, regenerating culture, community, tradition, health, and soil, then, then we're up for it. We're, we're open to anything. Well, hopefully, yeah, hopefully someone who's hearing this, you know, can help out. Yeah. I mean, you know, just sort of, I, I don't know, then this is what the whole idea of the podcast really is in the interviews yeah. is to, you know, it's, for, it's not for people to just listen and go, oh, that was nice and yeah. then go on the middle way. Yeah, yeah, warm fuzzies. It's like <laughs> it's the it, call to action, right? Totally. You know, it's the heart, it's the science, it's the call to action. I I, I always think that, um, you know, the only way to, to make change and for, for people to break habits and form new ones as if they have a non-doomy, gloomy call to action, you know, not feeling woeful, not feeling powerless, not feeling like they can't actually make a difference. Everyone can make a difference, you know, whether it's just breaking that habit of getting a takeaway coffee, you know, every morning and with a paper cup, you know, and, and taking your cup. It's like Costa always says, you know, we learnt how to leave the house with our keys and our wallet and our phone. Now all we need to do is learn to, to, to not forget our keep cup and our eco yeah. bag, you know, yeah. and then before long it'll be another thing and another thing. It takes mere weeks to break habits, you know, mm. and form new good ones, um, you know, in every sense of the word. And, and those call to actions, if people are, you know, given something mm. that they can go and act upon, you know, th- there are plenty of plenty of things out there we can do. And, and you know, like Hamish and I do, we sort of stress in our two-day intro to biodynamics is we want everyone to finish on day two with with what they can then implement the next day. Absolutely. It's, like, it's not like, Straight oh, I've got to go and read another book yeah, or yeah. go and do another course. It's like, you know, you can literally, we give you stuff to take home and yep. the next day, that night even, yep. um, you can be doing stuff that, that brings your learnings into the context of mm-hmm. your garden or your farm or whatever yep. it is. Immediately, and then it's from you know. Then you observe. Then you feel. Then you you learn. You know, oh. learning experientially. You know, which is what absolutely you know. go learn what country you're on. Learn how to say it. Learn how to say hello, mm. and plant a warrigal green or a bush basil mm. or a native thyme. Because that's a really cool thing, isn't it? There are straight substitutional stuff. As long as they go, oh, I've got to change the bloody yeah. almost direct. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, there's cinnamon myrtle. You don't. You have to get cinnamon from you yeah. know elsewhere. There, there is almost almost a direct, yeah. and, and if there's not a direct, there's something pretty bloody close. And I'm not telling you to j- just go and eat 
purely indigenous yeah. food, you won't survive <laughs> unless unless you're <laughs> unless you're a TO and you know what you're doing. Mm. You know, don't just start picking things willy nilly, but you know, just just be open to learning mm. and trying. You know, I think everyone when they learn to cook, they learn to cook with spices, and there's a whole native spice pantry right. out there for you to mm. play around with mm. and have fun with and experiment with and learn. We're all learning. Well, Rebecca, I've learned a huge amount today. Thank you. Not just out, not just sitting here with you now, but you know, out in in your in your land. Just as we look upon, as the sun is going down a little yes, way, um, this is um, this has been wonderful, and I really appreciate the the time you've given me and Damo and Mum and thank you. You know you, that um, it's your Sunday, it's your time, and I know Damo's away. You know, some part of the week. So um, for 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 him to give me you. For a period of time, I'm really He'd grateful for as well. Me, I'm sure. <laughs> as long as you can give me him, yes, I will. Uh, at some and other the next point, couple of days, for yeah, sure. he's all yours. We'll um, we'll work something out. That was wonderful. I've learned so much, and um, I trust listeners have as well. And I trust this is not the last time we get to chat. No. About Thank you for this having sort of me. Stuff. Appreciate it. Thanks for eating all my. I'm going to have another one. I'm going to sign off. Going. Oh no. <laughs> And next week's guest on The Regenerative Journey is Michael Taylor up there at Kentucky in the New England and New South Wales. We talked about um, his sheep breeding, ethical sheep breeding, silvopasture, agroforestry, tree planting, wonderful stuff. Tune in next week to Michael Taylor on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.